Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Sustainable E-Commerce Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build your brand for a healthier planet. As always, I'm your host, Giles Smith. And even though for obvious reasons we do talk a lot about sustainability marketing techniques on this show, I'm also fascinated with how people conceive of, develop and perfect their sustainable products. My guest this week is someone I've been kind of stalking online for over a year in a good way, I hasten to add, because the journey she's taking with her brand for me epitomizes how truly four good brands should operate. Frankie Layton is the founder of The Dirt Company, among the earliest of this new breed of brands in the laundry and home cleaning space, truly redefining what it means to be sustainable in this category. As a founder of an early stage brand, it can be so confusing to know the best pathways to grow and evolve. But reflecting back on this conversation with Frankie, I'm forced to concede that if I were starting a sustainable brand from scratch, I would approach it just like Frankie did. If I was designing and improving new products, I would follow Frankie's methodology. If I was leading a DTC brand really looking for better ways to operate, I would try to live up to Frankie's commitment. And finally, if I wanted a shining example of how to ensure my brand's purpose was congruent end to end, I can think of few better brands to model out from. So with that, let's start the show. Frankie Layton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Giles. Well, Frankie, it is a joy and an honor to have you here today. Uh, like I just mentioned, I was buttering you up a little bit before the show, I won't <laughs> lie. Uh, I do feel genuinely hand on heart, and I've said this on a few times to different people around the world, that I'm, I'm very proud of what we've accomplished in Australia with what we're doing with um, sustainability in the home cleaning, personal care space. I genuinely think we're we're leading the world in that category or those those multiple categories. And of all the brands that are leading our category in the world, the Dirt Company is one of the leaders here in Australia, which puts you right at the pinnacle of all the great stuff I think we're doing. So congratulations on really that journey that you've accomplished. But for anybody that doesn't know you, Frankie, or the Dirt Company, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and why you started doing this whole crazy stuff? Of course. And thank you for such a um, big introduction. Um, so I, I never set out to start a laundry detergent company. Um, it's probably the first thing I want to say. My journey started uh, probably in school. You know, I had careers counsellors and everything come in and say, but what are you going to do? And I never had any idea what I was going to do. So I wanted to travel. I wanted to go overseas. Um, and I ended up working as a stewardess on a super yacht in the south of France and later doing an Atlantic crossing from basically Tenerife across to the Caribbean. And that was some of the most beautiful days of my life, you know, just ocean for as far as you could see, um, dolphins bowing the boat like pods of 200 or 250, mums, babies, uncles, cousins, second cousins, they were all there. And at the same time, we would just throw the bags of rubbish that we were creating on the boat at the time straight overboard. And it was 2010, and this was perfectly legal, but it was probably like that stark moment where you see, um, you know, the most beautiful side of nature and also the ugliest side of human nature, knowing that we weren't breaking the law, but there was just nothing protecting 
um, this beautiful environment that we had. And so I guess I got in my head that I wanted to do something related to that. Um, but, you know, I was like any other 18-year-old at the time. I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to get through uni and be done with it as fast as I could. And so I did all those things and I um, ended up starting my career in Germany in um, advertising. And it was a really fun time because I wanted to be in Germany. I'd followed a boy over there um, and I needed a visa and advertising was the industry that gave me a visa. So, again, it came back to it. I never knew what I wanted to do. But I loved advertising. I loved the creativity of it. I loved the way that you had to analyze data and understand people and turn it into an idea and put it out the door. I thoroughly enjoyed that side of my work. Um, and so I really kind of got on the corporate ladder um, on the advertising train, basically, and came back to Australia about five years later um, and started working in advertising again here and then hit this moment or probably the second important epiphany, which was, you know, I don't really want to be my boss. Um, and that was probably the personal and selfish reasons for starting. I loved my boss, but I couldn't picture making a, like being a lifer in the career I had. So I had this uh, skill set in selling, I guess. I had this desire to do something to protect the environment. And I was just looking for the vessel when I came across the idea for the dirt company. And, and so the third epiphany for me was when I walked into the supermarket laundry aisle and just looked around and I thought, this is such a joke. You know, knowing a little bit about at that point about, you know, um, consumer goods because of working in advertising and how much water we were sending out in these packaging and knowing a little bit about e-commerce because I worked in a small branding agency for a while and we just launched some Instagram brands which had become global successes. I just thought, you know, this feels like an opportunity. We've got this whole environmental hazard in the cleaning aisle. We've got this whole opportunity to not need to be a part of the cleaning aisle for the first time because of e-commerce. I have this desire to do something that I feel like will, will give me the fulfilment that I feel I need to be the person that I, I want to be in my career. And so then I just had to find the way to do it. And so the idea for the Dirt Company was kind of born out of a, a spreadsheet called Why My Product is Better Than Yours. <laughs> and I wrote down a list of every um, product, I guess, um, face in the laundry aisle. You know, was it eco? Was it high performing? Was it cheap? Was it, um, you know, a known brand or whatever? And I started to write all the ways I could improve each of these things. And when I was satisfied that I'd found enough ways to improve what I thought currently existed, I decided to start um, the dirt company and give it a go. And so that's how I got there. Three epiphanies and a, and a bit of um, blind faith. <laughs> I love the story of that and how you sort of linked the epiphanies together to to actually going. And, and you told me something I, ne I never knew, which was that uh, those cruise ships just chuck the waste over the side. I never knew that. Well, they actually don't anymore. The law was amended in 2012 and you're technically okay. supposed to bring your waste home now whether whether or not that yeah. happens i'm not sure but um yeah does it get police though because it sounds like it was a, a practice that would have been implemented as rote for many years and then suddenly the laws come in but then you know in, it it's the sort of thing that it would go completely under the radar oh, people don't do it so i'm going to just go out there and say i reckon it still happens quite a bit <laughs> I, I would uh probably agree with you I'd yeah say. so anyway that's astounding and eye-opening so thanks for sharing that but what an interesting journey and then I suppose what I really think is admirable is that you you brought those epiphanies together 
And rather than just doing an academic exercise of going, okay, well, how could I make this better? You actually then went and did. You actually then did go and make it better. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that process of going, I know, I'm Frankie Layton. I know about advertising. I could make a, a better laundry detergent that's more <laughs> sustainable for the world. Like, how in the heck did you join those dots together and actually get your first product out to market? Um, so I guess there, there, there's a few ways, but I would say I lent heavily on the voices of other people to guide me through that process. Um, I looked for as many naysayers as I did people, cheerleaders, I guess. Um, I had a few people say, you know, thousands have tried before you, few have succeeded and, and that sort of thing when it came to the entrepreneurial side. But then I found a lot of people that um, had just little pearls of wisdom and I've almost got a, a back pocket of little pearls of wisdom. So I used to, in the early days, reach out to someone I admired once a month as like an actual job that I tried to do to see if I could have a conversation and share my idea. And I'm a big believer in share your ideas. I don't think protecting your ideas makes them stronger. I think that that it it has a greater potential to maybe disconnect, um, you know, the consumer from the idea a little bit. So I just went and told everyone this is what I was thinking of doing and I found this cool cleaning company in the States called Method that managed to make cleaning cool so I believed it could be done and then I had this sustainability idea that I wanted to throw into the mix as well so I believed that could be done. Um, and so slowly over time, I found people, you know, whether they said yes or no, they generally helped out with who the next person to talk to is. Or if you're thinking that, maybe you should also have a conversation with this person or the next person. And I just followed every single lead in that way. And I think that's probably the first, um, you know, common thread where I started to notice, you know, maybe I do have a little bit of entrepreneurialness about me. It's not letting those opportunities pass you by. Hmm. Um and I think I ended up finding the chemist, um, you know, we ended up talking about the formula. He said it could be done. The packaging was so hard because I just wanted to make 500 kilos because I just wanted to do a low risk launch for it. Um, I would have, if I searched my inbox now, I could probably find 200 people that told me that they wouldn't print just 500 bottles and 1000 refill packs for it. So I ended up using um, a company that my partner's big company that he worked for actually used and we just found some packaging that could fall off the back of a truck in that way and there was nothing official about the way that we first launched. So it was um, sharing that vulnerability, I guess, sharing the idea. People could really see that I was enthused by it, that I thought it would work. So even if they thought, look, we don't want to see you suffer, <laughs> they were still kind enough to say maybe you should go speak to the next person. And I did that and I did that until it probably took two years um, where I had a, a bottle of laundry detergent full in a bottle um, with a refill pack that only had one or two misprints on it. And uh, we had a website partially built at that stage that we accidentally left um, not password protected overnight in the development process. I've heard you yeah. say that. That's crazy. So you accidentally launched a yeah. business. That's so funny. And so then we launched it. So the next day I kind of just woke up and um, I hit the ring road in Melbourne, which is a great place to find B2B supplies and found boxes and things that I could pad the laundry detergent with. And I had to go buy a printer to print out some labels and walk them up to the post office. But yeah, it was iterative. It wasn't like a big bang plan it was can I do it this person thinks I can do it this person thinks it's a good lead this is a good lead I can make this here and so it wasn't so much a decision as it was an, an aggressive exploration of how it would be possible <laughs> that eventually turned into the company I guess you've continued that philosophy that iteration philosophy get it out to market whether by accident or on purpose <laughs> uh, and and then continue to work on a product kind of all the way through so 
Um, tell us a little bit about your your philosophy on on product development. I've heard you say a couple of, you know, sort of potentially challenging things to people's thought process. One of which is, you know, if you're if you're not slightly embarrassed about your product <laughs> when you first launch it, you've waited too long. Yes. But then on the same at the same time, you've continued then. And you still do continue to constantly improve your products. It's never is there, in fact, ever really a done in your view? Um, no, I I love the um I love there was an expression I heard in advertising, rough, rough, good enough. Okay, and it's how it's how we used to get a lot of good ideas over the line. I think um, sometimes polishing an idea too hard means losing the magic. And the other expression I like is um, if you're not embarrassed by the first product, you've waited too long. I look back at my first product and I was embarrassed. I mean, I sent these aluminium bottles in tissue paper in the thinnest boxes you've ever seen and put them through Ozpost who have six feet shoots that they drop them down. There was more detergent spilt in the um, in the process of delivering <laughs> it than there was that made it to the door in the first six or ten I, I sent out. But um I think what is important and I think what people connect to is the idea. And I think that's why that advice is so critical. You only need enough to convey what you're trying to do and then you can mm. feel where to take it because you'll get feedback on, um, you know, all different sorts of things. But if so long as you're resonating and you're connecting that idea through, people don't see the executional details in the way you do. In fact, they couldn't tell a, probably a draft website from a one that was the way that you meant to be because they don't know what the initial idea looked like in your head, right? They mm. only know, they can see what they're reading and they'll decide I like it or I don't. And, and it's extremely difficult for people to articulate those reasons because they're emotional. So they'll articulate them in yeah. rational ways like, oh, I like the colours or I like the, you know, I might like the font layout or I like the sustainability side of it or I like the price. But actually that feeling of wanting to connect to an idea or wanting to be something part of something cool is what compels the purchase. And you only yeah. need to get that across to connect to those early adopters because they're people that yeah. are looking for cool ideas and they're the people that will start your company no matter what industry you're in, people that want to give something yeah. you a go. What you've just said is incredibly insightful and, and I'd love to unpack that a little bit actually because what you've just described to me is, you know, and I'm, I don't doubt that this was knowledge that you brought with you from your, your past career in the advertising space, that ultimately purchasing is an emotional decision. Mm. Yes, okay, people do probably go through and they, there are some facts and some information pieces that they need to satisfy themselves that they're not making a stupid decision. Yeah. But ultimately, purchasing is an emotional decision. Yeah. And when we're in this sustainability space together, the emotion of it is about doing good in the world, yeah. right? It's, do, it's doing better in your life and thinking that you're making a difference mm -hmm. outside. Yeah. And so your story in Dirt really comes through. You put it front and center right at the top of your website. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I, I forget what the phrase is, something like, you know, wash it like the planet needs it or something like that. I forget what the phrase is. You'll be able to, you'll be able to bang it out better than I did because I don't have it in front of me, which is stupid. But anyway. No, you crashed it. It's wash like the world depends on it. Very, very That's close. The one. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So so that concept, right? You, and you're putting that really front and center in the storytelling because at the end of the day, you are selling essentially a commodity product. Yeah. So getting that first emotional attachment to that buyer is absolutely critical, right? Yeah. And and is that how you see it too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in advertising, we talk about something called the benefit ladder, which was, you know, it fulfills functional benefits and then emotional benefits. You know, you work it up that way. So what I saw was I wanted I wanted the um, the reason that people bought to be I like it, you know, something intangible, something that they can't describe very well but I wanted to mm -hmm. arm them with so much to tell their friends why they liked it. 
So, oh, it works really well. It's actually really cost effective. It looks beautiful. It's, um, you know, they donate their profits to other um, organisations that clean up the ocean, the ocean. So knowing that at the end of the day, people are going to buy what they want and that's going to be a thousand tiny cues that are going to make up that decision. But you've got to get through. It's got to have all those functional benefits before it has those emotional benefits. So it, it was important to me not to skip the functional benefits, which I think is yeah. often something that people do. Like I'm doing this great thing that saves the planet and so therefore people should buy in the mm. case of and, and i do think that works in some cases but in the case of laundry detergent right firstly you need to wash your clothes secondly you need to be able to afford it thirdly you need to be able to it needs to be accessible it needs to be available um so if you don't do those things there's no point there's no point in starting that let's save the world bit so for me that's why that that spreadsheet at the beginning why my product is better than yours um, became like really, really, you know, quite an important part of what we were doing um, because yeah. it meant I knew I ticked up all the functional benefits and then I had license to play in the next space with what was the purpose-led idea. Um, so I really yeah. thought of it in that way of you've got to get a better product first got to, and then you've got to layer on the sustainability stuff. Yeah, I love the way you're thinking about that because the reality is that um, – you know, we are these days in 2023, we are 100% marketing to mainstream consumers. Mm. You know, we're not, yes, okay, you know, eco warriors, you know, people that are hardcore into sustainability and always have been, will be an important part of our of our purchaser group. But ultimately, if we want to grow brands, it's mainstream consumers and they need to solve a problem in their own life yeah. first. They've got to wash their clothes. Yeah. They've got to make that whole process easy. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, yes, the, the storytelling is an critical important element to get them across the line. But fundamentally, if the product doesn't work as well yeah. as Omo yeah. or whatever other brands they're using, they're used to using, they're just going to go back to that straight away and you've missed the opportunity to actually make an impact, haven't you? Exactly, exactly. It's the Trojan horse. You've got to sneak your sustainability in there through a good product and not think of yeah. it the other way around or it's, um, it's hard to cut through. Yeah, I, I love that. And so is that why you still have a focus on continually improving your products and you haven't had a set and forget approach. Okay, that's good yeah. enough. Now we'll move on to the next approach. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, when we first started the company for two years, it was in my dad's garage. And um, for the first year, it was a side hustle. We never really designed the product that we thought we'd finish with. We designed the product that we could manage to design. You know, I think our, our startup budget was $30,000 and 20 of that went to development. So, you know, 10 did the rest of it. Um, so you, you, you've got to make compromise choices when that's what you're playing with to start a company. So any time the cash flow opened up opportunity to improve, I would take it. I would take it against the advice of our financial advisor <laughs> um, and against the advice of uh, our operations team because I think that, you know, um, uh, there's no point having a product that you personally think, oh, it could be better if we did this or it could be better if mm. we did this. I, I think that's the nature of, you know, entrepreneurial people. We're builders in our own mind. Um, we're delinquents a little bit in our own mind as well. So if something's not working the way that we want it to, it's it's probably one of the most important characteristics of driving a company forward is you change it. You, you put the energy in to change it. Unless, of course, your objectives are, um, you know, just built, built to sell or, you know, which even then I still think you have that that characteristic of you've got to keep your eye on the product and make sure it's the best in the market. And people catch up yeah. 
and then you got to go forward again and that's exactly right you hit it there right on the head which is and and you'd have seen this in your space because you've been around uh probably amongst the longest yeah. in this space yeah. right and you'd have seen all these new innovators come in over the past sort of three to four years yeah. maybe even the last 18 months to a degree yeah and 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 hit new heights and you'd be like okay if we hadn't been innovating along this way yeah we'd have been uh innovated out of the market by, by now right? totally and the other thing that i think is kind of like interesting on that note of looking at at new players is i actually find looking at them is a fast way to stunt my thinking i get really frozen like a like a like a deer in headlights when i look at the competition and think oh god they look like they're doing so well or they're doing so well and I remember having this great conversation with an entrepreneurial woman who I really admire and I was telling her about the competition and I said, oh, you know, everyone's telling me I need to like start pouring money into marketing and fight the same fight and rah, rah, rah and I'm not sure what to do. And she said, you know what you are? And I was like, yeah. She goes, you're jealous. I was like, oh, maybe I am. Maybe that's what it is. Like, you know, and you know how when you think of it in your personal life, right, you know how destructive and emotional like jealousy is. I think it's the same in your business life. You know, if you start to look at others and think, oh, that was a cool idea. How do I be that cool? You've already cut off your ability to walk your own path. So what I've learned over time and being one of the older ones in the game is, um, you know, our customers are all the inspiration that we need. They're who I like to tune into. They're who I will, you know, I'll happily walk out and say, guys, we're doing something differently. And that's because I've heard 15 people ask for it and, um, it's not, we're not doing it in the way that we are and we've therefore got to do it. And everybody in the business culturally is like, yep, okay, cool, came from the customer. If I did the same thing and said, oh, I've seen our competition do that, I would get so quickly shut down. Like you right. don't know how that's working. Don't assume that that's a good idea in their business. You know, and I'm so grateful for having that kind of support or that kind of, um, yeah, I guess cultural attitude in the business where we really only look to ourselves and to our customers and therefore we find the deepest well of ideas and we and we have uh, you know I said to I said to our general manager the other day it's so weird how like I've never got to the bottom of the list of things that we could do like it's yeah. just an infinitely growing list and it just gets longer still and I think a big part of that is making sure you don't let competition stifle your creativity and make sure you're led by what's happening out there in the sustainability world and what's happening in your customer's mind. And they're the two yeah. two, two things that I will always fight for. I don't even want to call that a nugget of wisdom because that's monstrous chunk of wisdom there. The whole jealousy thing, I think, is it's so tempting, isn't it, to think that other people, competitors especially, especially when you know they're doing all right and they're they're making press and making headlines and all the rest of it, you think that they are so much better than you. Yeah. Uh, and you think they've got the shiny objects that you need to go and copy. Yeah. And it's so tempting to get sucked into that destructive cycle. Yeah. But what you just said was, no, it's it's great to keep an eye on the competition. Sure, that's no worries. Maybe they do have some interesting thoughts and ideas. Maybe there are some things we can learn, but we have to do it in a way that makes sense to our customers. Yeah. And it's our customers that are going to inform our growth pathway and the new products that we bring out. Yeah, 100% what you said. <laughs> so what is your approach to listening to customers? Because you know, having done this for years myself, I know that customers can often lead you down a garden path as well. Totally, totally. So how do you get the right balance of that? Um, once I sent an email out to, I think it was like mm, maybe 8,000 customers who had bought this product that I didn't think it smelled good. 
and I had said it. What had happened is the change in it, the, the smell changes over time sometimes. And so you put it on stability for 12 weeks. And if it passes stability, you put it out there. But then it sits in the customer's cupboard for maybe like a year, right? And in that time, it'll change profile. And I thought that we had a problem, but it was early days. And I didn't know if we had a problem or not. And so I wanted to validate that it wasn't a problem. So I sent a customer out from a personal email that I created. And I personally replied to 400 customers. It took like um, seven days to reply to them all and um, went through all this feedback and took it to the chemist. And it was really, it was two amazingly interesting insights came out of it. One is like I was fishing in the right pond. I'd found the right problem. And we, we didn't have any performance related problems. It was just related to the smell, which was really interesting. And um Two, I think, oh, I think the other thing that was kind of interesting is I'd been looking at the wrong competition. So, um, you know, one of the things I said was if you weren't using us, who would you use? And everyone said, oh, Vanish or Sards, you know. And I was like, huh, it's funny how, you know, who you view as your competitors are actually maybe Mm. not your competitors. So absolutely I didn't take on board um, the feedback that was outlying. I didn't take on board the feedback that, you know, because it's if you can please 80% of people, you've got a really great product, but personal preference really mm. exists strongly, especially in the laundry. Um, and I didn't take on feedback that I thought was, you know, flew in the face of sustainability, you know, like, well, maybe you should just make your glass bottles plastic. You know, <laughs> you have to, you know, that's why you're here. That's why you came. So, you know, you got to know what to ignore as well. So I think that's that's one approach that I have is just ask the question and and know that that will take you time if you truly want to understand it. it but it is a worthwhile mm. investment to get one of your products right. The other approach I have is um, basically write out what the need is. So let's say um, recently we did a candle campaign and we needed to know how people felt about scent. So we so the brief was basically find a way to get as many noses as possible onto our product. And where we actually started was um, I briefed in the customer service team and our marketing team to say, I want a good idea for how we can do this. Like, let's turn it into an event or something fun and interesting. And then um, two of them came back with the idea of we should do candle making. And then we looked into candle making and we were like, oh, that's a cool idea, but you can only have like 20 people in a room or whatever else it is. And that's how we came up with the ideas of, well, why don't we just make the candles and send them out to our customers? Um, You know, and we made 400 candles and then we ended up after the email sent, you know, it was over by 10 a.m. That's how many people were so into this idea. And we pitched it as like, help us choose our new scent, had four cents, said choose one. And then, you know, we spent the next two days in the factory trying to make more candles, using up the dregs of everything we had, trying to keep up with the demand for these candles. And, and you know, in the end, it was an, a huge success. So we actually opened up the um, forum for customers to help us develop the products by sending them these candles. You know, we've had feedback like, next time you make them, can you put the wicks in the middle? <laughs> we're like, yeah, we're not professional candle makers here, but... You know, that's an, that's probably an example of that rough, rough, good enough idea. You know, people loved it. They know we're not candle makers. They're really mm. keen on being heard when it comes to product development. We found a way that we could manage it as a business, that we could also add value to the customer. And it started from being really strong about what we were trying to achieve and just letting the team kind of run away with different ideas. And so I can't take credit for that idea. That was our team kind of group thing that came up with it, but it, but with this strong notion of what we're trying to achieve as a company, that was really, really um, 
a hugely successful process for us as well. So, And ultimately sort of testing and getting people really involved and, and engaged is you know the key to build to building a um you know a really powerful brand because the customer the more you can engage people in the process the more they love the brand and will and will continue to be loyal totally. to it right i mean you know ride out the little mistakes that happen over over times like all oh, the sense gone funny yeah. after 8 months in the box yeah. you know, you can ride that kind of stuff out without losing the customer if they're engaged in the whole process right so totally yeah super smart i love the way you're thinking about that oh, thank you you're obviously a very customer focused organization mm-hmm. Um, how important then is the impact part of the business as opposed to simply solving the customer's washing washing needs at home? How important is the impact story and what you're doing with impact to your customers? Um, it's hugely important. It's, it's you know, often the number one reason that they find us to come and um, be part of the impact story. Um, I think what they really love about it is, you know, I think we're, we're in a, a frame of time where, you um, come buy our product and change the world is a really exhausting message. Um, Mm. I think our impact message is super authentic. So we start from the platform of if you buy a product, you have an impact. You have to know that. So what we're doing is we're not creating zero impact or no impact or we're trying to minimize the impact you have or the amount of stuff you create or the amount of strain you put on the planet through our process. And I think there's an authenticity, not to just that message, but that actual way of thinking that really connects our customers. So we often get feedback that's like, oh, I just feel like you guys are so genuine or you're just so um, connected. It's a really, really important thing for us to be portraying actually how difficult it is to do this um, kind of work and to make sure we're educating customers along the way in the things that we've found out because that enables them to use their knowledge to help wade through a sea of greenwashing as well. So one example yeah. is, you know, a lot of people say, well, why don't you just use recycled plastic? You know, and, they, and they're assuming that the things that they're picking up are 100% recycled plastic. But you can make that claim if mm. you put 1% recycled plastic in, in the product. And mm. recycled plastic is not a good material to work with. We've just had that experience with candles. Um, you know, their melting temperature was so low, we couldn't even put a little flame in there. In time, recycled plastic will go brittle um, if you, you if you fill it with something like laundry detergent. So, you know, there's a few reasons why we can't use recycled plastic, but that is so hard for a consumer to understand when they think they've right. already bought recycled plastic. Yeah. Well, so-and-so is doing it. It's, it's not them. I mean, they are to some degree. They have to put something in it to make the claim. But there's such a um, spectrum of, you know, those who claim the most and those who do the most. And I think for us, it's so important to do the most and allow customers to be on the journey of discoverability with us when it comes to impact, as opposed to claim the most and use it as the reason to sell. The impact side for us is the reason I'm interested in this business. I would be a happy chappy if I got to sit next to a pile of garbage and try and figure out what we could turn it into for the rest of my life, you know, and that is literally what we do upstairs in the warehouse there's a lot of logical reasons we should be using like a 3PL and a different manufacturer to fill. But if we do that, we can't keep it closed circle. You know, we can't keep our mm. hands on all the parts. We have to rely on other people to say, yes, we did this and we sorted this right and we shredded this right and this is the only thing we used in your product. So we keep it all in-house because I really, um, you know, personally feel connected to the idea of figuring out what to do with waste streams. And our customers really buy into the journey as opposed to the yep. save the world side of sustainability. And I, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want anybody to say, oh, you should buy dirt, they're saving the world. 
I would feel like running in and being like, no, 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 we're still selling a product and, you know, we've still got an impact and there's still things that we haven't finished or we haven't ironed out or we don't know. But if somebody said, oh, you should buy dirt, they're trying heaps of good things around Mm. um, sustainability and reducing our impact. I would be like, yes, that is, you know, we've got it right. We've got the message there. And I think that's a that's a um, a refreshing approach in the world where people, yeah, like it comes back to if you look at the competition and they say, oh, they're doing it out of um, recycled plastic and they've just stuck recycled plastic across the front. Maybe we should just stick recycled mm. plastic instead of made from 30% post-industrial waste, <laughs> you know, which sounds so much worse than recycled plastic. But at the end of the day, um, our approach to impact is something that I have felt was a slow boil that over time people have come to understand that you can engage with or not engage with. That's not the end of the world to me. But either way, we know that with every product we sell, we're reducing packaging. With every product we sell, we're reducing carbon footprint, you know, because of the reduction in um, in um, water weight in it. And with every yeah. product we sell, we are taking control of our own waste streams. We do not create a piece of waste that we do not process ourselves from our yeah. cardboard to our refill packs to everything. And, and they are the three things that I think above all, you know, above any of the donations that we've done or um, other little initiatives that we've done that felt, felt more maybe more marketing than they did authentic delivery. They're the ones that really sit out in, in my head as just really important ways to play. Very interesting you raised that. And I'm going to say the word congruency here because, uh, you know, looking at your brand end-to-end with what you're doing around impact, congruency is a concept or as a discipline that many brands fall foul of when they are talking about the sustainability profile of their brand, the, the impact they're having, and all the rest of it. Congruency means that you know your purpose as a brand is lived through the operations of what you do, mm-hmm. and that means the products you make, the products you sell. It means how you are thinking about the impact, the footprint, I should say, that you're, you're having in terms of the plastic you're chucking out the other end, or the waste product, the, the byproducts, the the carbon footprint, everything, and then ultimately the positive difference that you're making in the world either through or potentially both of your your products by nature the fact they're better than alternatives and then you know things like post-profit donations and post-profit impact mm-hmm. initiatives and i know that you guys do 50 percent of your profits go to uh things like you know plastic cleanup cleanup activities yeah. and all the rest of it so i come back to this word congruent going your purpose the products that you sell the operations, the way you run operations and the way that you bring back the containers to be shredded, recycled and used again. And then ultimately the impact initiatives, everything you do, you are literally a case study in congruency. (laughs) And I think that ultimately is why your story seems authentic. Yeah. Because you have this, and when I say seems authentic, is authentic, I should Mm -hmm. say, because you have this very powerful congruency end-to-end in your business. I mean, I appreciate you saying that. That's definitely what we're going for the whole way through. But I think where it comes from is, you know, I did spend eight or so years in advertising and I don't know if you remember Simon Sinek. He did that video. Yeah, yeah. I know. Simon actually was one of my earliest influences. People don't buy what you do. <laughs> they buy why you'll do it. And then we'd walk into every marketing meeting and people would say, the meaning of why, no, we yeah. need to find our why. Yeah. And we'd just be like, oh God. Um, you know, a why is important, but you can't Correct. retroactively make a why, in my opinion. Um, and there was an era where you could, you know, early 2000s, maybe, you know, right into the maybe next decade. I'm not sure, but, you know, where you could say, oh, you know, now all of a sudden we're going to stand for 
um, people. And then you start putting people all over your your advertising and then you start, you know, Mm. but inside you have a crap culture. Well, that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work because of social media, because of transparency, because of, you know, um, the veils are down. Um, So I think where it's really important to be congruent and I I think it's probably almost the price of entry if if you're going to start a purpose-led brand is to make sure that it is there because if you say, oh, you know, we're um, this great sustainability brand and, and we do all this stuff and we make it out of all this stuff and then you you say like, oh, we, how do you know? <laughs> if you can't answer that question because your manufacturer is, you don't really know where they are and you don't really know what their names are and you don't really know, you know, yeah. specifically what they've used in this scenario, um, you know, no one gives you a second chance anymore. Uh, there were there was a time where you could say whoopsie like um you know i was i was didn't do my due diligence and i was fooled but you know with so many people making it available to do so many good things you have to be sure that that is the decisions that you're making every step of the way um or people will find a way to show you that you've not done it right (laughs) 100 and on that line i love the word the other phrase you use there and i think you literally use the phrase journey of discovery which is something that we've used quite a few times in the show this concept of being transparent to the journey is ultimately a very powerful tool when it comes to being unabashed at sharing what you are doing because nothing's perfect yeah you know yeah. You, you i'm sure will in one year from now we'll be looking back at the packaging you guys have now and go oh god we can improve <laughs> on that right you know and i'm not i'm not saying there's anything wrong with your packaging i'm just saying simply i'm simply <laughs> saying that the world evolves all right we're working on it right now <laughs> yeah i thought you might be the point is it's an evolving journey, isn't it? It's about recognizing what you need to do and then sharing that openly and going, yeah, okay, you know, th- these are still problems that we, these are unresolved issues that we've still got to work on. Totally. And I think, you know, greenwashing, um, well, as I say greenwashing, I, I don't necessarily mind people putting out claims that gives consumers hope for a better future. You know, I'm not the Grinch on um, doing great things. But I think um, where the world of uh, this, like, increase of green claims is going i think consumers are noticing the gap between like our claims are getting better but our waste situation is not Mm. our recycling rates not improved drastically got worse in fact exactly so there's there's these things where i think consumers are going well hang on for years i've been buying good green products why isn't it working and the truth is it's hard it costs us twice as much to reuse a refill pack than it would to create a new one it costs us nothing to dispose of them. It costs nothing, nothing for anyone to dispose of them. So um, then we have to find people to do it. We have to do additional quality checks. It creates additional liabilities. Like there's so many reasons why using waste is tricky. And, yeah. um, you know, for us, that's why it's so important to show the journey because we can't compete with claims that are um, too big for us because actually we don't know yet <laughs> some things we're still right. figuring out if we can do it or not and so but all that journey is content and and we're in that content era and so i think you'd be mad to say oh don't show them because then you'd have to think of you know what's the next campaign that you're going to do and then that comes at a huge cost and and you run into the um issue of being incongruent yeah so i think it's it's a huge opportunity as much as it is you know something we've decided to do there is a business reason behind it as well and that is it's a great campaign you know showing what we're doing every day on in this mission to do less harm and to do better is a great campaign because it's ups and downs and highs and lows and people like to see you fail as much as they like to see you succeed as long as you're still smiling you know yeah and at the end of the day those can be really engaging 
pieces of messaging, right? That that vulnerability of going, yeah, we failed at that. Sorry, yeah. is is you know an incredibly incredibly inviting thing to be involved with. Yeah. Uh, so what a fascinating conversation. I know I could I could continue talking about this stuff with you for hours, but we are running out of time, Frankie. So where do you see Dirt going in the next twenty four months? What are the big things that you're working on? What are the big directions you you feel that the brand needs to take over the next couple of years? Um, a few. We've got a few good ones, I think. Um, the, on the recycling front, we're really still in the scale up of the actual recycling side of it. On the laundry front, we're looking at all aspects of the laundry and what we can do to really make consumers' lives aesthetically pleasing, very nice smelling and very accessible for everybody. Um, so I've got, you know, my eye on accessible design in the laundry space. And I think for the brand as a whole, you know, we you have the first three years where you don't know if you're going to live or die or be blown over. You have the next two where you learn how to do business. And I think it's a really exciting time for us because we're through the five years now. And so we've got the mm. business and we have opportunity to work out what our business strategy is other than survival. Um, and so that's where we're at yeah. now. So it's a really exciting time for us. What a fantastic place your business is. And so congratulations for, for, for getting there. Where do people go and get your products? Um, the best place is online at thedirtcompany.com.au. Um, you can find us all there or we're stocked in a handful of supermarkets, but um, depends who you base. So I'd go online to our website. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much again for sharing those insights. Absolute wealth of knowledge has come through uh, today, I think. And I, I'm going I'm to be scratching my head to figure out which of those insights I've put into my into my top takeouts at the end because was, it was coming thick and fast through there. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. You're a great person to talk to. Oh, thanks, Frankie. That's very sweet of you. And congratulations again. I I look forward to seeing the brand grow to new heights. Thank you so much. All right, back to Giles again for my top takeouts. And I genuinely have so many important lessons to dwell on from my chat with Frankie. So let's talk about product development first. I hadn't heard the term rough, rough, good enough before, but I do agree that if you're not slightly embarrassed about the first release of a product, you've probably waited too long to release it. You can do all the lab testing and closed door usability testing you want, but at the end of the day, you'll never really know if you're on the right track without real world customer feedback. Now that being said, releasing a terrible product can obviously cause irreparable brand damage. So good enough, does have to be taken seriously. But when it comes to sustainability, you actually have an advantage over non-sustainable brands. You have a story your customers care about. It's vital to sell that story hard with imperfect new products so that customers can buy into the concept, allowing them to identify yet forgive you for any perceived weaknesses your initial version might have. Then when it comes to improving your product, Frankie's view is if you find yourself thinking, ah, it would be better if, then you probably do have more work to do. But be guided by your customers again, not your preconceived expectations, and certainly not what your competitors are doing. And that brings me to the second takeout, the perils of brand jealousy. Just because another brand in your space is doing something doesn't mean it's relevant for you to copy. It's great to be aware of pathways your competitors are following, but you never really know how well a new feature is being received. All you get to see is their marketing spin. Even if they do have a good idea, it doesn't mean that you can copy it successfully, economically, or even that it makes sense for your brand or for your consumers. Lastly, I do want to come back to this concept of the journey of discovery. 
If you're operating in sustainability, you're at the leading edge of brands. Nothing is perfect. The best choice today does not mean it will still be the best choice in two years. To keep moving on the edge and like Frankie be pushing the boundaries of what's possible means two very important things. Firstly, not everything you do is gonna work as well as you'd like it to because this stuff's really hard. Secondly, if your customers are following you, that means they're on the edge too. You owe it to them to invite them in and communicate with them about your journey. And as frankly quite rightly pointed out, journeys make for great content. And since we're in an age of content, you really are missing a golden opportunity if you're not sharing your journey with customers, letting them know the highs and lows and educating them on how difficult all this stuff can really be. I know it can make you feel vulnerable to share that content, but that's exactly what makes customers love you all the more. So I hope you thoroughly enjoyed listening to Frankie's story today. I'll be back again with you next week with more stories from the world of sustainable e-commerce. So until then, keep building your brand for a healthier planet.